The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community. Your host is Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. This hour is designed to inspire, inform, and to help you live better with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo. Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer, an internet radio show that focuses on informing and inspiring people to live well with cancer. I'm Kim Tebaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. The Wellness Community and Gilda's Club have united to become the Cancer Support Community. We are now one of the largest providers of cancer support in the U.S. and around the world. Our services are offered at more than 100 locations worldwide and online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. Today on the show, we're going to take a deep look at uh, President Obama's Affordable Care Act and the legal challenges to it that will be presented before the Supreme Court March 26th through the 28th of this year. Uh, as President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community, I, I certainly hear a lot of you know, heartbreaking and, and, to be honest, sometimes infuriating stories um, about the emotional and financial impact uh, of the cost of cancer care on people's lives. Um, we, in fact, learned from a study that, that we conducted that the stress associated with handling the cost of cancer care is comparable to what uh, folks experienced who uh, were uh, in the thick of Hurricane Katrina, which is kind of hard to imagine. Um, this year, the Cancer Support Community released our third edition of Frankly Speaking About the Cost of Cancer Care, uh, in direct response to people's needs to understand better how to navigate the healthcare system and what resources are available to them. Um, I've seen both hope and concern from patients and their families as we watched President Obama propose and, and try to get healthcare reform passed. Um, you know, the wait for some really felt like it was excruciating, and the question that kept being asked was, will this really make a difference for me and my family? Um, so the bill passed. It seemed like uh, almost immediately so did the legal challenges begin. Um, the, uh, the upcoming Supreme Court review has the, pot- uh, the potential of changing everything we thought we knew about this bill. Um, we are very fortunate to have with us today two extremely knowledgeable experts to help us understand the bill that was passed the challenges being presented, what the Supreme Court might decide, and, and what it means to all of us. Uh, first, I have Peter Thomas. He is a principal of Powers, Pyle, Sutter, and Verville, a Washington, D.C. firm that focuses on health care, education, and the law of tax-exempt organizations. Mr. Thomas has a federal law and legislative practice in the areas of health care and disability policy, Medicare coverage, reimbursement policy, medical rehabilitation services, devices, Research, Vocational and Community Services and Supports. Welcome, Peter. Thank you so much. Uh, and then we have Karen Davenport. Karen is a research project director and, lecture, uh, director and lecturer at the Department of Health Policy at George Washington University. Previously, Karen directed health policy research and advocacy with a particular focus on health systems reform at the Center for American Progress. Hi, Karen. Good afternoon. Uh, so I'm just going to give a, a, a little bit of background. Healthcare reform um, and the Affordable Care Act are really kind of hard topics to get our arms around. I thought it might do us all some good to take a step back and look how we got here. Um, my production team did some great research. We actually found that, that uh, in 1900, 
in this country, the average American spent $5 a year on health care. That's about $100 in today's money. Imagine that. Um, mind you, there wasn't much health care going on at that time. Uh, in fact, an NPR story describes medical care at the time as, quote, medieval, uh, a bunch of potions that did nothing. Uh, by the 1920s, things had improved, but still people were only willing to spend on medicine uh, when they were really sick. Uh, but the big seemingly irreversible change came in the 1940s. Uh, during World War II, wage and price controls were placed on American employers, so to compete for workers, companies started offering uh, health benefits, and this was really the beginning of, of the employer-based uh, insurance system. And then by the 60s, 70% of the population is covered in some kind of private voluntary health insurance plan. It was also in the 60s that President Johnson signed Medicare and Medicaid into law protecting the poor and the elderly. And then in the 70s, American medicine starts to be seen as being in crisis, really due to escalating health care costs, rapid inflation, expansion of hospital uh, expenses, and a whole host of other uh, a whole host of other factors. So, Karen, let's uh, you know that's a lot, obviously a lot to take in, and, I, and we have a lot to cover today. But let's fast forward to today. What are the important facts that our listeners need to know uh, about health care, about how people are insured, about how many people are uh, are, are not insured, and how how those folks are getting health? Care. Sure. Well, as probably most of your listeners know, people get insured a variety of ways. They might have health insurance through their employer. They might qualify for Medicare because they've either reached age 65 or they have a disability. Um, they might qualify for Medicaid because they are low income and they're in a family um, with children or they are a child or, again, they might be over 65 or have a disability and be low income, which will qualify them for Medicaid as well. Um, but a lot of people are uninsured, and that really was what health care reform was all about. Um, the most recent data, there's about 50 million Americans who don't have health insurance. That's a number that obviously went up with the recession as people were losing their jobs. Mm -hmm. The safety net programs, and particularly Medicaid and the Children's Health Insurance Plan, caught a lot of kids, so we didn't Mm -hmm. see children becoming uninsured as quickly as adults. Um, But still, that's a a lot of people to um, be going without health care coverage, and when you don't have health coverage, it's obviously much harder to afford health care. And folks do go to safety net providers like community health centers and um, public health clinics and turn to the emergency room for care, but it's not the same thing as having, you know, your own doctor who takes care of you when you need it and knowing that if something's really wrong with you that you have a way to pay for the care you need. So, Karen, we're talking about 50 million or so out of a what population of about 300 million right. uh, who are uninsured. Now, we hear the term a lot lately, underinsured. What does it mean when we say someone is, is, is underinsured? And, and, you know, what's the impact on, on all these health care issues on those folks? Sure. Well, usually um, underinsured means that they have health insurance, but they have high deductibles and co-payments and other kind of cost sharing, or else their insurance, there's a lot of things that it might not cover um, because it's simply not part of the policy or because when they purchase their coverage, certain conditions might have been excluded by the insurer. Um, and the estimates vary, but I think it's somewhere around 30 million people are estimated to be underinsured. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, that gets us up to something like 80 million people who are uninsured or underinsured. And, you know, the people who are underinsured, those are folks who um, they face some of the same problems getting health care as people who are uninsured because they Mm -hmm. have to pay a lot of money up front. They may also be people who, if they get really sick, are um, more likely to face medical bankruptcy, bank, you know, bankruptcy because of their health care costs, because they've 
had insurance, but it's just not been adequate when they've really needed it. Okay. Okay. Um, so, so obviously, a big crisis, uh, big crisis in this country that we're talking about. Eighty million people in the ballpark of being uh, uninsured or under uh, underinsured. Karen, let's just look for a minute, and we're gonna we're gonna shortly pull Peter into the conversation. But let's look for a minute at at uh, you know how do we compare. Um, so let's say other, you know, what we sometimes refer to as developed countries, uh, countries in Canada, you know, Western Europe, Japan, um, uh, you know, how, how do we compare in terms of how much we spend on health care in the U.S. versus other countries? How do we compare with other countries in terms of, of life expectancy or, or um, other important, you know, global health care markers that we should be looking at? Well, um, we, we spend more than any other country, uh, both in, you know, just sort of total dollars. We spend about $2.6 trillion a year on healthcare right now. Um, and we spend more on a per capita basis as well. Um, I think our next, you know, sort of right behind us, although with a bit of a gap, are countries like Switzerland, um, which spends you know, a considerable amount on on healthcare for their their um, population, but nothing like what we spend on a per capita basis. And the you know some of the reasons behind that are certainly how much we use services, but it's also about the way that we have structured our healthcare system, the degree to which we're paying administrative costs to insurance companies, and the way that. Um, you know, physicians might own an imaging center and, you know, all sorts of dynamics in our healthcare system that you don't see in a lot of developing countries. Um, you know, that said, we do have, um, I mean, people can get excellent quality care in the United States. They can also get really poor care. And we see that, you know, the U.S. in terms of of markers like life expectancy and um, infant mortality and some of those other um, data points that show, you know, kind of like how well your healthcare system functions as a whole, that we are just not getting, we don't do as well as other developed countries, and we don't get the kind of value for our dollars, therefore, that other countries get out of what they put into their healthcare system. So, bottom line, we're spending more than, uh, than any other country per capita, which, which uh, you know, which means per person, per head, um, but... We don't have the top numbers when it comes to life expectancy. We don't have the top numbers when it comes to infant mortality. Um, can you shed a little more light? Uh, any other kind of numbers you can share with us on that, Karen? Who, you know, where do you know, do you know where we rank in life expectancy, or who's, you know, who's at the who's at the top of the list, and 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 what do we know about why? Um, but you know, I think that there's a lot of debate about you know, which numbers are the most important and, and which right. things, and I don't have all of them at the at my fingertips. Yeah. I would say, you know, kind of the consensus in academic circles is that France has a really excellent healthcare system um, mm-hmm. in terms of the outcomes that they get for the money that they put into it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, it, it depends a little bit on, on what you're looking at. Um, you know, of importance to your listeners, one of the things that we do very well in the United States is cancer treatment, and that is something where... We have better outcomes than a lot of other countries. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it also depends what you're interested in. And if you're looking at population health really broadly or if you have some, some narrower things that you want to look at. Right, right. So, so, there, so, so we just need to eat more baguettes and brie <laughs> and drink more wine. And I, I'm willing to take that experiment under. I'm, I'm going in that study yeah. with you. Yeah. <laughs> we're, 
getting up to our break here, uh, uh, to our break here, Karen. But um, uh, uh, in terms of the in terms of the things that um, uh, that we are looking at, I mean, I, just 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 quickly, um, you know, we hear a lot of folks talk about socialized medicine, or you know, and and I know a lot of these systems um, have a more kind of centralized system of healthcare, or they do have a national healthcare uh, system. Do we believe that 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 that's one of the challenges in you know in our country as we're kind of comparing data um, that you know these countries are providing health care to all we as a practice are, are not and do we think that's impacting these sort of outcome numbers that we're talking about well I think certainly um, when you look at a at other other developed countries that are providing health care to everybody and they're doing it through what is sometimes called a single-payer system or a national health care system they get better results um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. if you look at the, you know, kind of broad population. That's not to say they don't have problems because they do, and yeah. other developed countries face the same issues we do in terms of rising health care costs and, and, you know, growing health care spending. Um, but it is easier in some ways to, you know, to develop a, to provide a baseline of the kind of preventive care in particular um, yeah. and primary care to your whole population if you have more of a national health care system. Right. That's something that, you know, I think looking at health care reform in the United States over the long term, you know, is an yeah. issue and an approach that has you know, kind of waxed and waned and is not ultimately the way that we decided to go. Go, right, but, right. Um, you know, the way that we reform the healthcare system, I think we still can, you know, work to put that kind of emphasis on primary care and prevention as well as the kind of high-tech treatment that we've become accustomed to here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this is frankly speaking about cancer. We're talking today about the legal challenges to the Affordable Care Act, which we call health care reform. Some folks call it Obamacare. Uh, there have been some challenges uh, that are now going to the Supreme Court uh, this, uh, uh, this month. So we've got uh, some interesting times ahead over the next uh, several weeks and months uh, around this topic. We've got two experts today who are going to help us break this down. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health & Wellness. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community, a global network of education and hope. 
I'm Nick Nicolaides, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Community's Frankly Speaking About Cancer series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azi, are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the health care process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day. Cancer. It's a lonely word. Terms I don't understand. Choices I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope and help. Support from cancer survivors. Links to research and clinical trials. Help with finances and access to care. All behind you at Breakaway from Cancer. Created by Amgen to empower cancer patients. The cancer support community is proud to be a partner of Breakaway from Cancer. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Today's episode is being brought to you in part by Celgene and Azi. I'm Kim Tibaldo, and today I'm joined by Karen Davenport, a research project director and lecturer at the Department of Health Policy at George Washington University, and Peter Thomas, a principal at Powers, Pyle, Sutter, and Verville, a Washington, D.C. firm that focuses on healthcare, education, and the law of tax-exempt organizations. Uh, we're talking today about legal challenges to the Affordable Care Act, uh, healthcare reform, sometimes called Obamacare, which will be presented for the Supreme Court starting on March 26th, just a couple, uh, a few short days away at this point. The Supreme Court's decisions uh, on this really have the potential to have a, a serious impact on how we access and pay for health care in our country. Uh, there's so much information here, it can be really intimidating to try to sort this out, but with Karen and Peter's help, we're going to shed some light on uh, what's going on and what you need to know. Um, so, Karen and Peter, the Affordable Care Act took so many twists and turns before being passed that, that most of us are really unable to follow what stayed in, what got taken out, what, start, what started when the bill was passed, uh, what starts uh, were scheduled to start in 2014. So, so, Peter, can you take a couple of minutes to just walk us through the key uh, provisions of the act so that we can get our heads around this? Sure. Well, first, I would say that the act was a, was a grand compromise in some respects where Pretty much all of the interest groups lined up to say, we will support a very significant expansion of coverage of health insurance, whether it's through private insurance or whether it's through an expansion in the Medicaid program. Uh, if all of the rules of the private insurance market are reformed, and so the theory being if everyone is covered by insurance, you can eliminate a lot of the most egregious, kind of the worst aspects of our current healthcare system, where you've got people that can't get access to insurance even if they want it, or they're priced out of the market because they've got some kind of condition like cancer that prevents them from being covered in the future, or something along those lines. So that was kind of the grand bargain behind this bill, and it's one of the reasons that so many new people will be covered, about 32 million new people will be covered, about half in private insurance, about half in Medicaid. Uh, and why there is such a major rewrite of the insurance laws in this country. In order to rewrite the insurance laws, where you can have someone who has a health care condition that's possibly expensive, that needs treatment, 
they walk into an insurance company or go to a website and try to buy insurance, in order for the insurance company to cover that person and survive as a business, uh, they have to know that everyone's covered. And so you can't just expect insurance companies to wait until people get sick and allow them to come purchase insurance from that company. That's a losing proposition financially for the company, and you just can't expect that to happen. So that's what was behind this kind of grand bargain. Huge amounts of new people will enter the ranks of the insured rather than the uninsured, mm-hmm. and they'll reform completely the rules of insurance in the, in the marketplace. I'm happy to go through those, those major rules if you'd like. Yeah, that would be that would be uh, that would be great, Peter. I think we're just trying to get our arms uh, arms around this. Particularly, you know, a lot of our audience obviously are impacted by cancer. So I know that there were some, uh, you know, some specific things you talked about. What we call quote unquote pre existing condition, eliminating that. So maybe we can highlight, you know, some of those top provisions. I know there were some things that went into effect when the bill was passed, and some things that aren't slated to go into effect until 2014. So maybe you can tick off a, a couple of those highlights for us. Sure. Well, in 2014, uh, there will be something called guaranteed issue. That means that any individual, any American, can, can purchase insurance from any insurance company that they choose. That insurance company has to provide them with a policy. That policy cannot be rescinded just because the person gets sick. Uh, there are some limitations to this if there are some fraud in the application process and the like. But by and large, rescissions of insurance can no longer occur. Rescissions meaning they can't pull it out from under you. They can't take it away from you. That's correct. And unfortunately, okay. that is a, a reality of today's insurance market. Mm-hmm. They, can, they must renew the plan. If the person wants to continue that insurance with that insurance company, they must renew that plan. They don't, okay. The insurance company doesn't have a right to say, I'm sorry, we're no longer going to cover you. Okay. They, they cannot deny coverage for pre-existing condition exclusions. That's kind of a technical term. What it basically right. means is I've got something. I've got a condition, an injury, an illness, and I, I need to be insured. Right now, insurance companies can say, we'll cover you, but we're not going to cover any treatment for that thing that you have. They can no longer do that in 2014. They must cover all of your conditions or all of your problems. Okay. Uh, and they have to give you a premium that's not based on health status. So they, they can no longer charge you by looking at what your health conditions are and then adjusting your premium based on that. That's one of the key provisions. That's the thing that allows insurance companies to price insurance policies so far out of the realm of possibility that the person can't access insurance even if they want it. The price mm-hmm. is so high, they can't even get access to it. Uh, take in, take the, 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 those are all incredibly important new aspects of the new insurance model under the, in 2014. So, but, Peter, let me just ask you quickly. So, so will the price that the person so, – so what will the price be based on? Will everybody be able to pay the same price, or will, be, will it be based on how much money I earn or how many people are in my family? Or, or, so, so we're saying that, you know, the idea is I'm going to be able to buy health insurance at an affordable rate, right? It's called the Affordable Care Act. But, what, 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 but how do you define affordable? What will the, the amounts that are going to be charged be based on? Well, uh, uh, it'll be based on things that are legitimate to base the price of health insurance on. They'll be based on whether you're an individual applying or whether you're applying for your entire family. That obviously is something that an insurance company should say, well, if I'm going to cover four more people, um, that premium is going to have to be higher. So the, the, the number of people being insured, uh, 
the age of the people being insured, but there are certain limitations to that. There are certain ratios where you can't have uh, dramatically higher um, insurance um, cost for an older person than you would a younger person. Okay. Smoking status, does a person smoke or not? That's permissible. That's also limited to a certain extent in terms of the variation in the premium. Okay. A geographic area, where in the country do you live? I mean, healthcare is more expensive in the urban environment than it is in other environments. So mm-hmm. those are the kinds of things that you can differentiate based on. You can't dif- differentiate the premium cost based on your condition, your health status, or your disability status, or your claims experience. And those are the factors currently that price so many people out of the marketplace. And so that's huge. And when you add to that the fact that there'll be no more uh, annual caps in benefits and no more lifetime caps in benefits, that constellation of reforms to the private insurance market will completely change the incentives in the system. I mean, no longer will insurance companies be incentivized to do the least possible they can provide for you and make it the most hassle that they can possibly make it (laughs) so that you ultimately just walk away from your insurance and either go to a different company or join Medicare and Medicaid, if you can, if you qualify. They will do all they can, presumably, to figure out a way to make it work because they've got you as long as you want to be with them. And so that's a big change in incentives Mm -hmm. under the new marketplace that currently does not exist. And were there any reforms, Peter, for employer-based insurance? Are we making it easier for small employers to to provide insurance? I mean, will this have an impact on the employer-based insurance as well? Yeah, that's a great point. I I must point that out. I mean, by and large, the larger employers that are providing uh, insurance to their employees, whether it's fully insured or whether they self-insure their their employees to different models that big businesses use, they're largely held harmless or held aside from this law. Not until later on do some of these provisions apply. The main aspect of this law that's affected is small businesses and individuals. And the whole point is is to uh, keep the, the insurance market alive. This is not, a, contrary to what a lot of people have heard, this is not a government takeover of healthcare. Private insurance plans compete against each other in things called state-based exchanges, where you basically compare one plan to another based on an essential benefits package, which is kind of a, a mandated benefit package that all, all people must carry in 2014, that's called the individual mandate, uh, and ultimately that allows people to compare and price and shop for the best product, the best insurance package that they want. And it pools all of the different individuals and small businesses together so that um, the price can be ultimately spread much across healthy and sicker populations. So that's the theory behind the uh, state-based exchanges. Behind the exchanges. Okay. So, so, so Karen, uh, let me ask you, and that was a great summary, um, uh, Peter, really helpful. Karen, uh, we're getting to the break here, but one of the most startling statistics that I've heard recently is that more than 50% of people who declare personal bankruptcy in this country do so because of health care costs, and we certainly see that with people with cancer that we're serving. So people need help now. So why, why, why is it that we have to wait until 2014 uh, until most of these, these provisions uh, uh, take effect? Why didn't it just all go into place when the bill was passed? Well, you know, as Peter mentioned, some provisions did start immediately, you know, including some changes that are important to people with cancer. So Peter mentioned how coverage can't be um, pulled out from under you um, any longer, you know, if you, particularly if you were to get sick. 
Um, and he also mentioned that plans can't use a, a lifetime cap as a way of limiting the total benefit that you can get. And those are protections that are in place now. Okay. Um, but, you know, as you know, there are a lot of pieces that don't take effect until 2014. Um, and that includes those other really important insurance reforms that Peter mentioned, like the the ban on pre-existing condition exclusions, um, you know, expanding eligibility for the Medicaid program and creating those exchanges, that um, that all waits until 2014. And I think there's a, a few reasons. Um, one is, you know, certainly the states need the time to create those exchanges and get health plans um, signed up and getting prepared for the other parts of, of health reform, like signing people, being ready to enroll a lot more people in the Medicaid program. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are some big changes, and states can't do it overnight. And then I think, you know, the other thing to keep in mind is that, um, as Peter was, was talking about, a lot of these changes are all tied together. You can't require everyone to hold coverage until you build that exchange, that better marketplace to buy coverage and, and make help available for people who need the help paying for their premiums. And you can't prohibit pre-existing condition exclusions until you require everyone to hold coverage. So it kind of all comes together at once. And so I think that's one of the main reasons why a lot of these reforms don't take place till 2014. Um, and then I think it was, you know, there were sort of how the bill was put together and how the financing worked and, and how the subsidies were spent and stuff, and that all needed, um, you know, time to come together too. So there are several reasons why it's not till 2014. And Great. sometimes it feels like a long wait, but I suspect <laughs> if you were in a state trying to make it all happen, you'd feel like it was you know, pressure down your neck. Yeah. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, but for someone who's uh, who's ill and and perhaps suffering, uh, you know, as a result of some of these limitations, it does seem like like a lifetime away, but I think right. it's important for for folks to at least understand uh, you know, some of these key elements and some of the uh, pieces that did go, uh, go into place. Uh, this is frankly speaking about cancer. Uh, today we're talking about healthcare, healthcare reform, the legal challenges to, uh, the Affordable Care Act. We have two very knowledgeable guests who are helping us, uh, uh unpack this a bit and, and then understand it, uh, a little bit better so that we can see how it applies to those with cancer, how it applies to many of our listeners today. We're gonna take a quick break and we will be right back. A healthy dialogue for your lifestyle. Voice America Health & Wellness. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355. Or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community, a global network of education and hope. 
I'm Nick Nicolaides, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Community's Frankly Speaking About Cancer series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azi, are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the health care process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day. Cancer. It's a lonely word. Terms I don't understand. Choices I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope and help. Support from cancer survivors. Links to research and clinical trials. Help with finances and access to care. All behind you at Breakaway from Cancer. Created by Amgen to empower cancer patients. The cancer support community is proud to be a partner of Breakaway from Cancer. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Today's episode is brought to you in part by uh, Genentech and Morphotech. Uh, I'm Kim Tibaldo. Today I'm joined by Karen Davenport uh, from George Washington University and Peter Thomas from Powers Kyle Sutter and Verville were talking about the legal challenges to uh, the Affordable Care Act. In the last segment, we talked about some of the provisions that went into effect immediately when the bill was passed and some of those that won't go into effect until 2014. A couple of other notes for um, our listeners I want to make sure we, we mentioned before we get into the challenges. Um, one of the things that did go into effect when the bill was passed uh, is that um, there can be no limitation on pre-existing conditions for children. Uh, and that went into effect immediately, so that's important to know. Uh, and also, uh, one of the changes that took place immediately was that young adults up to the age 26 uh, can stay on their parents' uh, uh, plan. And, uh, in fact, since that went into effect, there are over a million um, newly insured young adults on their parents' plan. Uh, so folks really are st- uh, starting to take advantage uh, of some of these new uh, provisions, and we're seeing some expanded coverage for those who, you know, may have uh, kind of fallen into a little bit of a dark hole making some of these transitions. So, so that, good to know that uh, those things are actually uh, actually happening. I, I want to now uh, uh, get into some of the challenges um, to the Affordable Care Act. Peter, the Affordable Care Act was passed on March 23, 2010, almost exactly a year ago. Um, here we are a year later. The Supreme Court is scheduled to hear uh, challenges to the act. Can you explain to us in the simplest terms possible, uh, what the arguments and the cases are about, how they ended up in our nation's uh, most important court. Can you walk us through that? Sure. Well, um, the two things to remember from the uh, earlier in the program is that under the Affordable Care Act, ex- uh, the expansion of coverage in the private insurance market is dependent on what they call an individual mandate, that every individual must uh, retain a qualifying coverage, they call it, which is essentially holding uh, and having a benefits, uh, an essential benefits package that they pay for and are uh, covered by. Uh, and the second expansion is Medicaid. Medicaid adding about 16 million new people uh, to their roles. It's a federal state program. Both of these issues uh, and the authority of Congress to do those two things is being challenged in the legislature in the in the legal process. These cases primarily started by 26 states joining together and challenging, uh, along with individual plaintiffs in the federal courts, 
these two major issues, and they have now uh, gone through the court system and are at the Supreme Court. Uh, the court is expected to, to spend six hours uh, listening to these four different arguments, which I'll lay out in a moment, uh, and they're expected to reach a decision in this case, a written decision that they'll publish probably in June of this year, before, mind you, the next presidential election. <laughs> so health reform will clearly form one of the main is- issues of this next presidential election, without and a is doubt. That, and is that a quick turnaround time for them to issue a decision, Peter, or is that standard time? Uh, it's relatively standard. This, they're okay. taking great pains to not do too many things that are out of the ordinary. Right, right. The one thing that's out of the ordinary is granting six hours of debate. Uh, okay. That's that's a massive amount of time. It's the one of only two or three cases in in the history of the court that has received that much time. The last one was in 1966, that involved the Voting Rights Act. Uh, but ultimately, there's four main issues that are going to be challenged. The first. Okay. May I, may I just walk through them? Please do, Peter. Please okay. do. The first is whether or not this case can even be heard right now. In other words, under what they call the Anti-Injunction Act, uh, you're not supposed to be able to bring a suit to, a, to challenge a tax that has been levied on you unless that tax has actually been assessed and has tried to been, you know, the government's tried to collect it. Well, this law doesn't really go into effect, most of it, until 2014, and so no one is aggrieved by this. There is no harm by this yet, and so there is an argument that the case simply, you know, the court does not have jurisdiction to hear this case yet. It's not ripe, and so that is the first question that they'll argue, and in fact, the interesting thing about that is that the Supreme Court itself requested and hired lawyers to argue that case. The litigants Mm -hmm. didn't even raise that issue. The second and, and what is that called? What is I'm it sorry. called, Peter? Again, how do we refer to it? Well, you could, uh, it's called the Anti-Injunction Act, uh, okay. and uh, it's a bit, a bit of a technical issue. Yeah. But um, in the end, if the uh, the court could ultimately throw the case out of court just based on this one issue, right. I, right. I don't okay. think handicapping the issue. I don't think that they are going to do that. But and I've read a fair amount of legal scholars who agree with yeah. that point of view. But it's not it's not a foregone conclusion, and that could. Okay wind up um, being the thing that throws the, the case out of court. Great. Number two. So number two is the individual mandate. Does the U.S. Commerce Clause of the U.S. Constitution um, permit Congress to use that um, that clause in the U.S., uh, you know, the, their ability to regulate interstate commerce? Uh, did they go too far by requiring individuals to purchase insurance, even if they don't want to purchase insurance. And that is the big question about the individual mandate. And let's, let's return to that because there's a lot more to be said about that. Okay, great. The next is if they strike down the individual mandate and they say that's unconstitutional, Congress went too far, then the question becomes, well, how much of the law is invalidated? Is it just that one provision? Do the rest of the things that we just talked about, pre-existing condition exclusion protections and community rating and all those great things that we just talked about, do all those things go away? Do they survive? Does the entire 2,700-page law just evaporate? Um, That's a big question. It's called severability. Is the individual mandate severable from the rest of the law or is it not? And if it's not, 
to what extent is it, is, is it severable? So that's a whole other issue that will need to be considered. But again, only if the individual mandate is is um, invalidated or, okay. or thrown out. If, if, the inv- if the individual mandate is upheld as constitutional, you don't really get to the issue of severability. All right. So what's the what's the uh, what's the trading on individual mandate? What are we what are we hearing about that one, Peter? Well, I'll defer to Karen on the fourth one. The fourth one is the expansion of Medicaid. But let me go back to individual mandate. Um, so this is you know there's two clauses under the Constitution that allow Congress to extend its power uh, to do certain things that are often challenged. One is the necessary and proper clause that Congress may pass laws that are necessary and proper to regulate interstate commerce. Um, so the big question is, does this, um, does the decision not to, co- not to purchase insurance by an individual sitting in his or her living room, does that impact interstate commerce? If it does impact interstate commerce, then the Congress can go ahead and pass the Affordable Care Act and require every American to, to carry insurance. If it doesn't impact interstate commerce, they've gone too far, and that, the, that mandate is unconstitutional, and the, whole, and the law is struck down. Let me ask you quickly, Peter. So the, the, the fourth piece is around expansion of Medicaid. So how, wh- how do they propose that Medicaid will be expanded? Are they going to change the eligibility criteria so that more people qualify for, for Medicaid? I mean, is the theory that there are people who, re- who are really struggling who need that kind of assistance and we're going to change the criteria? Uh, yes, but uh, let me let me defer to Karen if she's willing to take that on. Great. Sure. Karen. So, so the way Medicaid is structured right now, and I alluded to this a little bit, is you you need to be poor, but you need to be more than poor. You need to yeah. either be elderly or have a disability, or be a child, or be a pregnant woman, or fit into some of those categories. Um, which means that if you are a childless adult and you don't have a disability and you're 45 years old, uh, chances are good that you will not qualify for the Medicaid program no matter how poor you are. Now, some states have um, been creative and found ways to cover people, but but by and large, that's the rule. Under the Affordable Care Act in 20, starting 2014, everyone with income below 133% of poverty, which um, works out to think about $18,000 for an individual. So, again, not a whole lot of income, but um, would qualify for the Medicaid program. So if you were poor and not making much money, you will be able to qualify for Medicaid no matter what kind of family you live in, no matter what kind of health you have or, or how old you are. And that is a huge change. Um, mm-hmm. It really creates, you know, uh, it equality across the states in terms of people and their, you know, the kind of income they have and the, their ability to get health insurance coverage. And so that's not a part of the new law that gets as much attention as the individual mandate, at least not on, um, you know, the, the talking head shows and stuff, but is a really yeah. important part of the new law. Yeah, it sounds like it. Um, let me ask you both, we're just quickly getting to the break here. Um, but um, in terms of, uh, you know, we, we talked about some, 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 uh, some uh, handicapping on the uh, anti-injunction issue. Um, uh, Peter, what, what are the scholars saying 
uh, about the individual mandate. I'll ask you both that what you're uh, what you're hearing through your your various networks and 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 you know from those who are doing these kinds of analyses. Peter, I'll start with you. What are we hearing uh, about you know how the uh, how the court might rule on that? Well, I mean, no one really is taking a gander at uh, at exactly how they're going to rule. It's probably going to be a five to four decision. There's about four. Uh, conservative justices and four pretty liberal justices lined up. And Anthony Kennedy, Justice Kennedy, is usually the swing vote. There's a chance that um, if uh, Anthony Kennedy votes with the liberal uh, block, that um, that the Supreme Court, uh, uh, you know, Chief Justice uh, Roberts may switch over and and vote with the majority. The Chief Justice has a very long-standing, or as long as he's been there, he's he's tried to to figure out ways not to have five four decisions, you know, very close mm-hmm. decisions. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, I think the the money is on the fact that you know the better money is on the fact that the individual mandate actually does survive and is mm-hmm. constitutional, but that um, that is met with great um, uh, challenge by a number of different people. Karen, I would have to agree with what Peter says. Um, you know, the there was a recent case around Medicaid in California that was a five four decision, uh, sending it back to a lower court. Um, where Anthony Kennedy, um, you know, was the swing vote there. And I think um, a lot of people, or at least who I talked to, you know, saw that as a, a, a good sign. But to what degree that's magical thinking and to what degree it's real, um, you know, not the exact same kind of case. So, um, but I think that Peter's analysis overall is, is on target. Great, great. Uh, this is frankly speaking about cancer. Um, we are talking about the legal challenges uh, to the Affordable Care Act. Obviously, some pretty complex stuff here, but our amazing guests have done a great job in in, uh, in helping us break this down. And, and um, I, you know, I think it's um, uh, I have to say it's interesting for us to be working in a healthcare nonprofit organization, and you know, in in these times. Um, uh, you know, some, some pretty groundbreaking stuff that's being heard um, uh, by the court and um, uh, a, a lot of, uh, obviously, some critical issues that can have a great impact on, on our entire nation, but obviously, you know, particularly on those folks with cancer, we, you know, we, we certainly have observed and heard from those folks we serve that there are uh, a number of things in the Affordable Care Act that they believe, you know, will be good for cancer patients, things that we've heard specifically that you guys have mentioned around uh, around uh, uh, pre-existing conditions. Certainly, we know a lot of folks who are denied coverage nowadays because of pre-existing conditions, um, uh, things like annual caps, things like lifetime caps, which, which uh, I, I think have the tendency to perhaps impact those with cancer, perhaps more more than some other uh, some other illnesses. So I think it's really um, fascinating to kind of get this background. We're, we're going to take a quick break uh, here, and then we're going to come back and just talk a little bit um, uh, a little bit about you know what the potential impact could be depending upon uh, how this decision does go down. This is frankly speaking about cancer. We're going to be right back. listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members or explain to friends your priorities have changed. 
The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community, a global network of education and hope. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Uh, today's episode is being brought to you in part by Millennium and Amgen. We're coming to the end of our conversation about uh, health care reform. I, like all Americans, I've been trying to wrap my head around all of this. And, and preparing for the show, I was really thinking about our, our rights as Americans, uh, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. I mean, you know, as a country, we've agreed that we should all pay into a public health school, you know, a public school system, um, because we want our populace to be educated. We've decided that safety is important, so we pay taxes to support law enforcement and fire departments and the military. We pay for, for roads. Um, um, you know, Peter, uh, you know, maybe you can help us uh, break down this individual mandate question, um, uh, you know, a little bit. I, mean, I know you talked a little bit about interstate commerce, which I'm not sure I, I even understand the impact here, but, you know, w- what are the implications here of us saying, you know, you as an individual must, uh, must, must purchase this health insurance? What are, what are, what, you know, help us uh, uncover the legal question a little bit more on that. Sure. Well, um, first off, I must say that once it's something that we have not said is that if you cannot afford insurance and, and you have a certain uh, income, you do get some subsidies from the federal federal government to, pur- to purchase that insurance. But let me just say that this can be broken down pretty uh, fairly uh, simply. The people who are challenging the individual mandate and saying mm-hmm. the government can't make us buy a product mm-hmm. are reading the, the Commerce Clause very, very narrowly. They're saying, how can I, sitting in my living room, choosing not to purchase health insurance, be impacting interstate commerce between, you know, business, economics between states? And that's a fair fair point of view, but it's a very very narrow reading. The other side is saying, no, 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 no. Congress saw a national problem, tried to address it because it does clearly impact economics across state lines. You've got you've got a major problem with uninsurance uh, in this country and underinsurance, as Karen mentioned earlier. And the US, the Commerce Clause clearly allows uh, the you know the, the spreading of risk. In other words, people uh, by not choosing to purchase insurance, you're not just impacting yourself. When you show up at the hospital because you've gotten into a car accident, you're treated, mm-hmm. and those costs are spread with every, by everyone else who has insurance. And so this is simply the economic effect uh, that does impact everyone. It impacts clearly across state lines, and that's why the proponents would say it is constitutional. That's kind of how it breaks down. Got it. And, you know, Peter, I had someone ask me recently, um, they say, look, I'm required by law to have car insurance. 
you know, why shouldn't I be required by law to have health insurance? Yeah, the only difference there, and that's a good argument, but the only difference there is that um, you don't, you're not mandated to drive. You don't have to drive. Um, if you show up at the hospital, you get treated. And so there's a slight difference in that argument, but it still is quite compelling. I mean, if you want to drive and you choose to drive, you have to purchase insurance. Um, in this country, with respect to the health care issue, there's no requirement. Um, it, the requirement doesn't work in the same way. And if you I show see. up to the hospital, you'll be covered. You'll be covered by law, right. So, so, um, so Karen, let me ask you. We, um, uh, you know, earlier in the show, we were talking about sort of other, you know, other countries, other, um, uh, you know, Western uh, countries that that are providing health care uh, to their citizens. Um, uh, you know, I, I'm just, I still sort of wonder how we got to a point where we have 50 million people who, who are uninsured, 30 million people underinsured, and, and how, how we didn't get to this idea of health care as a basic kind of human right um, in our country, like the right to education, the right to, to, to safety and security, um, you know, how we, got to, how we kind of got to this place and why we don't consider it or haven't considered it a basic human right. You know, I think that there are probably large books written on that. And, you know, I, think, um, I know it's a big philosophical Yeah, you know, to me, when I look at, at our healthcare system and how it's changed, it's been a, a real evolutionary kind of change. And, the, um, you know, there was a big fight, for example, over establishing the Medicare program. And it was, you know, President Johnson with big majorities in the Congress who was able to to get that done, but it was something that had been, you know, national health insurance had been talked about under President Truman and had been, you know, you know, if this had been stepped back to cover just people at that time who were who were elderly, um, I think that this has been an issue that is just. Um, you know, we've not been in the same, I guess, philosophical place as um, European democracies, for example, is how they think of health care as a right. Um, but I do think as health care has gotten more and more expensive um, and the kind of things that, that we look to health care to do for us have gotten more complex and technological, um, that I think there is more of an attitude that, that health care um, is a right or can be a right. And, you know, really mm-hmm. I think that where, you know, in a place like the United States where health care services can cost so much, that also means that, that we need really to have a right to health care coverage and, and health insurance. And that's what the Affordable Care Act lays out. It lays out, you know, that you have the right to purchase it and to have it be something that isn't based on, um, you know, making sure that you're young and healthy, but that, that all of us are able to have that ability to purchase health coverage. And, you know, I think that, that like many rights, that carries responsibilities with it, um, and that includes, you know, purchasing coverage, being sure yeah. that you do that, um, and, you know, probably doing what you can to stay healthy for that matter too, but also to understand that, you know, what we're doing is, as Peter talked about before, we're sharing the costs related to illness and, and injury across the whole population, that you're not, you know, just paying for what you're going to use someday down the road, although someday you might not be one of those young and healthy people. Um, and just quickly, Karen, did you, did you say that there's, um, that there is, that through this act there is uh, there are some mechanisms to be focused more on prevention. There are the the new law puts um, it creates a a prevention and wellness fund um, that yeah. puts more money into 
population health and into prevention and, and public health, which, you know, I think has a lot of promise. It puts more money in terms of paying for primary care. Those are the kind of, you know, family doctors and general practitioners who take care of, of most people until they get sick and need to see a specialist, yeah. um, you know, paying them more through the Medicare program. And, um, and then the kinds of benefits that uh, health plans have to carry if they offer coverage through those health insurance exchanges. There's a big emphasis there on making sure that, you know, preventive services that we know work, that those are, yeah. those are covered. Great, great. Um, this at no cost such... sharing, by the way. Yeah, so that that's a good point. <laughs> Say that so again, that, Peter. Well, at no cost sharing, those preventive services, not only under private insurance, but under Medicare as well, uh, do not require anything out of pocket from the individual. So there's no disincentive, no financial disincentive to go and get the test that's going to, you know, keep you healthy. Got it. Got it. Uh, yeah, I, I, you know, I'm amazed. I was just actually in, in, in Cuba on a cultural uh, program and, and um, learned that Cuba has the highest five-year breast cancer survival rate in the world. Um, Cuba is a tiny little island, and um, they, they really attribute so much of that to prevention. There's a very strong, um, you know, program of, of, of prevention uh, in, in healthcare in Cuba, and they're seeing some very interesting uh, uh, results, as, you know, d- due to that. So it's a, it was just a fascinating visit. But um, uh, we're, we're very close to the end of our show here. I want to thank our wonderful guests, Karen Davenport and Peter Thomas, for lending us their expertise today. We'll be following these developments uh, 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 closely and sharing with you everything we find out so that you can make the best decisions for you and for your family. Hopefully, uh, Peter and Karen, you'll come back and join us uh, in June after these decisions are issued and we can kind of break down the decisions for our listeners and, and uh, help them really understand uh, uh, the impact. I want to invite folks to visit our new website, uh, cancersupportcommunity.org. We have a, a wonderful new and improved website and also a great and very active blog uh, where we're, we're uh, blogging and putting a lot of information up on on, uh, on this issue and other uh, pressing issues that are impacting uh, those with cancer. Um, I just want to mention we have uh, 57 affiliates across the country where we provide support groups, education, nutrition, stress reduction for people with all uh, cancers, any stage of illness for their family members and loved ones. All of these services are free. Uh, you can find a list of our centers at cancersupportcommunity.org uh, or you can call us at 888-793-9355. Uh, friend us on Facebook, uh, follow us on Twitter, and uh, if you'd like to make a donation, you can do that online as well. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Until next time, be well, do well, live well. Thank you for joining us for Frankly Speaking About Cancer with your host, Kim Tibaldo. We're here for you every Tuesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. In the meantime, stay connected online at cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org.